friend of mine named Natalie posted this on Instagram last week. Take a look. Kids today are soft. I died once when I was five and my mom made me walk it off. Anybody else grow up that way? Oh man, I'm telling you, I did. When I was 12, 13 years old, I had a lawn mowing business. We lived in a subdivision in Wichita, Kansas, so my business was as far as I could push my mower. Dad was a big fan of my brother and I going to work when we were young. I started shoveling walks and mowing yards when I was four, I think. And so as far as I could push my mower, I could stretch my marketing area around. Well, I had knocked on every door I could and was mowing as many yards as I could, but I wasn't making the kind of money that I thought I should because back in the the 1970s and 80s, when a kid mowed a yard, we got paid $2 for it or something along those lines. There's head shaking. You know what I'm talking about. So I wanted to make a little more money. And I told Dad, this just isn't working, Dad. i got to figure something out. Dad said, well, I got it. Build a cart that would go on the back of my bicycle that would hold a lawnmower. Wasn't old enough to drive yet, so Dad just determined what I needed to do was stretch my territory. So he put a cart on the back of the bike and said, pedal further, go farther, you'll make more money. So I did. I was pedaling home one day after a hard day of mowing lawns when the, the hitch on my bicycle broke and the trailer came off with the lawnmower in it. When it came off, it dug into the back of my leg and ripped about eight inches from the knee up. And it, it deep cut. I thought I was going to bleed out. And I knew I couldn't leave my bike on the side of the road. And God helped me if I left dad's lawnmower on the side of the road. So I had the trailer in one hand, the bike in the other hand, dragging a leg. Finally got home and I walked in the front door. And I announced to my mother that I thought I was going to die. And I was bleeding out. And all she could say to me, because it happened on the exact day that she got new carpet in the house, was this. Don't you dare bleed on my carpet my legs hanging on by a thread and she says don't you dare bleed on my carpet so I went outside and I rubbed some dirt on it and I went on my way I mean what what else are you going to do that's that's what we did back then boy that gave perspective to us didn't it when you die when you're five and then you walk it off or you don't bleed on the carpet and you rub dirt on it gives you perspective perspective is a good thing read a story this week about a lady that understood the value of perspective. And once I read her story, it just kind of stayed with me, been bouncing around in my head. Her name's Florence Chadwick. Florence was the first lady to swim the English Channel both directions. She was an accomplished open water swimmer. She knew what she was doing. She decided that she wanted to swim from Catalina Island back to the California coast put everything in place, trained for it, got ready for that big swim, and when the day came, she was excited. She got in the water on the island, and she headed for the coastline and was doing really well until she wasn't. And it wasn't the normal things that you would expect that got her. It wasn't the cold water. It wasn't fatigue or muscle cramps that got her. It wasn't sharks that started swimming around her that caused her to fail on this attempt. It was not jellyfish that came and stung her and caused her to cramp up that kept her from realizing her goal. It was fog. Fog. That's all it was. She said that when the fog set in, she could no longer see the coastline and there was no way to go on. 
When she got into the rescue boat, she found out that she was only a mile, actually a little less than a mile from the shore. If she'd have known how close she was, she said she would have persevered. She would have kept going. Now, if you're listening to her story, you heard me say it wasn't all of those things that caused her to fail in that attempt. The really remarkable part of Florence's story is what she did next. One month later, she decided to try again. Now, she trained a little bit more, kept herself in swimming shape so that when the day came, she would be ready to go. And then she had hoped beyond all hope that no fog would set in. But it did. That morning, the fog was there. She still got in the water on the island and swam towards the coastline. This time, she was successful. People ask her how she did it. How did she swim through the fog? This is what Florence said. She had a mental image of the coastline, and she kept it in her mind the entire time. And she was able to swim through the fog. Now, that's perspective. That is perspective. And what a great way to approach this goal. She had a mental image of her finish line. She kept it in her mind, and that helped her swim through the fog. That same type of thing is what the Apostle Paul was teaching in Philippians chapter 2. If you brought a Bible with you, open up to one of the most familiar passages out of this book that we can find. It has been taught and preached over and over and over again for good reason. There is great medicine in this, most of it having to do with perspective. Verse 1, chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul's talking about perspective. He really is. In order to understand that, though, you have to remind yourself of why he was talking about perspective. This church that he loved, these people that he loved in Philippi were under attack. Everything that they loved was under attack. Their church was under attack. At least two different ways they were under attack. The first came from without, from the outside of the church. There were false teachers that were bringing wrong doctrines to these new believers, and they were getting some people to sign on, convincing some people to believe wrongly. They were leading people astray. Paul was extremely concerned about that. He loved this church. 
And they were attack, or under attack from within as well. It wasn't just from the outside. It was from the inside. There was division among their church. They were fighting with one another. They were separated in a lot of different ways. And as you read through the book of Philippians, you get a real sense of what those separations look like. And you'll see that as we continue on in this series. You've already seen some of it. So Paul was concerned. What he wanted to do and when he wrote this letter from a Roman prison was recalibrate their thinking. He wanted to recalibrate their perspective. Have you ever needed to be recalibrated? I know I have. Paul wanted to recalibrate them. Now, some of you are looking at me thinking, what in the world do you mean, recalibrate them? Well, just to make sure we're on the same page, let's look at some definitions of what that means, to recalibrate. Here's one for you. This comes from Webster's Dictionary. To calibrate something again. Boy, that's helpful. <laughs> you got to think, Webster, whoo, <laughs> he went the extra mile on that one. Dictionary.com, however, does take it a little bit further. We have people like Nick Grotejohn here with us this morning. This would make sense to Nick. The rest of us are going to be kind of lost. To correct or adjust the gradations or settings on a measuring instrument, sensor, or other piece of precision equipment. Nick, does that make sense to you? Makes sense to you. For me, I'm like, uh-huh, well, that took it a step further than Webster. Way to go, dictionary.com. Not sure what to do with that. But the Cambridge Dictionary, the Cambridge Dictionary really does help me out and maybe you as well on this idea of recalibration. Take a look. To change the way you do or think about something. That's what it means to recalibrate a person. To change the way you do or think about something. Paul needed to recalibrate the church in Philippi. He needed to change the way they were doing some things. He needed to change the way they were thinking about some things. This isn't the only time in Scripture that this happens. In fact, God has some incredibly powerful ways of recalibrating us. We find them in Scripture in different places, but when we put them all together, we see the means that the Lord uses to accomplish this powerful thing in our lives, this recalibration. Here are some of God's favorite ways of doing it. We'll just put them up on the screen. He recalibrates us through His Word. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 tells us that the Word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. God uses His Word to recalibrate His children. He uses prayer as well. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18 contain this powerful little teaching, and it is summed up so concisely with these words, pray without ceasing. You pray about everything. God uses prayer to recalibrate His people, to change the way we do or think about certain things. Through the encouragement of other believers in the church, Again, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. The writer of Hebrews would say, And let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let's encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. The gathering of the church on a weekly basis is a recalibrating event as we encourage one another. Certainly we are opening our Bibles and certainly we are praying, but the fellowship of believers is given to us by God as a recalibrating event to strengthen us, to encourage us, and to sometimes change the way we do or think 
about things just by coming together and encouraging one another and building each other up. Number four, through Sabbath rest. Exodus chapter 20 contains the commandment. Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 contain great teaching about Sabbath rest. Whatever you do, do not neglect this recalibrating tool. I did for way too long. I didn't understand it. And even though I finally got to a place where I did, I didn't believe I needed it. Sabbath rest is given to us by God for a very specific purpose. Oh, we work six days out of the week, but on the seventh, we rest for good reason. It recalibrates the body, the mind, and the soul. Don't overlook Sabbath rest. It's powerful. And then number five, this is the one we're talking about from Philippians chapter 2. Through the depth of our relationship and understanding of His Son. God recalibrates His children through His Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, pay attention to Jesus. Pay attention to the way He reacted to other people. Pay attention to the way He served other people. Pay attention to his perspective and his attitude. If you have your Bible still open to Philippians chapter 2, let's get back into this passage. There's some great stuff for us to learn from it. As we do, you have to recognize that the 11 verses that we just read have a great deal to do with our attitude. Our attitude. Listen to this again, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now that last verse, verse 5, listen to it again. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, is the most telling verse in these 11 about perspective and attitude. But I just read it for you out of the English Standard Version. I really like the way it reads in the New International Version. Take a look. It gives us a different view of it. Your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. This whole passage is about attitude. Now, you know what attitude is. I know you do. And I'm sure that you're aware of the fact that there are three ways or three things within us that determine our attitude and make it visible to others. The first thing that determines attitude is how we think about something. The second thing that determines attitude is how we feel about something. And then the third thing is really how our attitude becomes evident to other people. It's how we act or behave in regard to whatever it is that we're dealing with. It's how we act or behave in regard to that thing. Those three aspects of our life govern our attitude. How we think, how we feel, and how we act. Now, once you understand that, it gets you a little bit deeper into the idea of what attitude really is. The Apostle Paul saying your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Well, what type of attitude was that? 
Psychologists today, modern psychologists, would tell you that there are four different types of attitudes. And they really boiled it down to four. Now, there are a few other kind of fringe psychologists and mental health people that tell you that there are more than this. But the mainline modern psychologists tell you that there are only four. Three of them probably won't surprise you. Two, I know, won't surprise you. We'll put them up on the screen for you. The first is the positive attitude. You've been around people, and maybe you are one of those folks that just seem to have a perpetual positive attitude. No matter what is happening, you are good with it. Good or bad, you can roll right through whatever the situation is because you see life through this type of a lens, a positive attitude lens. The same psychologists that have identified this as one of the four main attitudes in the world today, prevalent attitudes, would tell you that those that have a positive attitude are very confident, they are traditionally very happy, they are satisfied, they are determined, and they are resilient. No matter what happens, a positive attitude brings those types of things around. Well, as you make your way through the list, you go from the positive attitude, not surprisingly, to the negative. There's the negative attitude. People that are governed by a negative attitude see the worst in everything. They never really see a, a positive way through. A negative attitude says, well, that's it we're over. And it is governed by a unique set of emotions like doubt and anger and fear until eventually frustration takes root and failure is seldom very far away from a person governed by a negative attitude. So not surprising. Maybe you're one of those people that battles against a negative attitude. Maybe you know other people that battle against a negative attitude. Maybe you live with them or you work with them, so you know exactly what this is like. The third one, and this is one that you're probably familiar with, but it may still surprise you to hear the title of it. It's called a neutral attitude. The neutral attitude has really no wrestling match with doubt, but also has very, very little hope. A person that has a neutral attitude will shrug their shoulders about almost anything. Ask them how they feel. I, say, eh, I don't. Ask them what they're thinking about something. Yeah, whatever. Doesn't really matter. That's a neutral attitude. Now, parents especially listen to this. A neutral attitude is one that if it takes root will become a negative attitude. So psychologists tell you that when your children are reacting to you with a neutral attitude, shrugging their shoulders, just kind of blasé or apathetic about anything, psychologists would tell you you work them through that so that it doesn't take root. You get them to the place where they can talk about what they're thinking and what they're feeling so that that doesn't become the prevalent attitude within them. Same psychologist would tell you that with just a few minor tweaks, a neutral attitude can become a positive attitude if you invest in changing it, which is really kind of encouraging. When we look at somebody that just shrugs their shoulders all the time and seems to not care, just a few minor tweaks can change things. But then there's this fourth prevalent attitude. Odds are you've not heard of it. A few of you might have, but most of you probably haven't though you have been around it. Here it is. It's called the sicken attitude. S-I-K-K-E-N. The sicken attitude. 
It's a dangerous attitude. Of the four, it is the one that you want to avoid the most. It comes not from situations or circumstances. It is personality-driven. The sickened attitude appears to be around all the time. There is no hope in the sickened attitude. There is no positivity in the sickened attitude. Everything is negative. Everything is seen as potential failure. A sickened attitude is defeated from the outset. The sickened attitude doesn't even want to get out of bed in the morning. The sickened attitude governs every decision, every choice that is made by a person that deals with it. Psychologists would tell you that it is not very hopeful when a person is stricken with this type of an attitude. But here's what I love. They would say it can be changed. The sickened attitude can be changed. And psychologists, secular psychologists say it is changed in the spiritual realm. Now, how interesting is that? It is changed in the spiritual realm. That's what Paul was teaching. In those verses that we just read through, that's what Paul was teaching. Your attitude can be changed when Jesus becomes a part of your life. The apostle would go so far as to say, your attitude should be the same as Jesus's. Your attitude should be the same as His. And it can be that way through transformation. When He becomes a part of your life, when the indwelling of the Spirit happens in a believer's life, attitude changes. It changes. That's part of the whole process of transformation within Christianity. Now listen to me. Christianity is not just salvation. We already talked about that a couple weeks ago. Christianity is transformation. It's becoming a new person. The Apostle Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And the new comes with the indwelling of the Spirit. When the Holy Spirit takes up residence within us, when Jesus lives within us, transformation happens. Renewal happens. Regeneration happens. That's a lot of what I love about this passage from Philippians chapter 2. It is about the renewing of the mind, the renewing of the attitude, the ultimate renewal of the heart that we become a new person. And like I've already said, it's not the only place in Scripture that speaks about this. Let me walk you through some this morning. We're going to start in Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Listen very critically as we go through these two verses. Listen close. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed by this world, but, here it is, verse 2, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. There's this transformation of the mind, transformation of the attitude. Now, that deals with how we think about things. Take a look at what King David says about how we feel about it. This is found in Psalm chapter 51, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. 
Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. That's how David's saying, help me feel the right way about things. Create in me a clean heart. Titus chapter 3 verse 5, or 4 and 5 reads like this. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day day. There's this process happening in a believer's life called renewal and transformation. And as we make our way through the process, as we make our way through the process, we become more and more like Jesus every step of the way. And that's the goal, according to Paul in Philippians chapter 2. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. I love the way Winston Churchill summed up the power of attitude, and he wasn't even doing it from a Christian perspective. Churchill said it like this, attitude is a small thing that makes a big difference. Boy, it does, even in our walk with the Lord. So we may look at that and say, there is no way that I could pull this off. In fact, we get through the first four verses of Philippians chapter 2 as Paul is talking about how to relate to one another in the midst of attack, whether that is from the outside or the inside. He walks us through some real practical things, but then we just check out of this passage. As soon as we get to this idea that our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, we just stop and we say that is nothing but theory, theological theory that is completely impossible. Well, don't fall into that trap. Do not fall into that trap. Because Paul actually shows us three little things that become measuring rods for us on how our attitude in both our mind and our heart can be changed and how we can measure how we're doing with it. The first has to do with how we see other people. Let's go back to Philippians 2 together. The first has to do with how we see other people. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. How do you see other people? Is that with a positive attitude, full of hope? Is that with a negative attitude, full of defeat, frustration, and failure? Is that with a neutral attitude where you just don't even care about other people? It's all about you. Or is that with that sicken attitude, which takes negative to a whole different level? How do you see other people? It all begins right there. So you start asking yourself, how am I approaching other folks? Jesus told us to do the same thing. When he was questioned on the greatest commandment, Jesus would say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus was recalibrating all of mankind right there. How do you see God and how do you see others? That's how you begin the process of transformation within attitude. Look at how you see other people and use that as your starting point. The second step along the way is how do you value other people? Let's pick back up here. 
Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, which once again is your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How much do you value other people? Jesus valued us enough that he would die for us. How much do you value other people? Now, there are other places in Scripture that give us some insight into that. Sadly enough, this is one of those accounts in the Bible that once we get through children's Sunday school, we tend to never look at it again. Or if we do, we don't look at it the way we should. This is called the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's found in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. Listen. Behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to them, What is, or to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbors as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. How do you value other people? How do you see other people? That's, that's where it all begins. But how much do you value them? And you may wonder to yourself, how do I answer that question? Well, back in Philippians chapter 2, we already got some insight into it. What are you willing to give to them? Jesus gave his life. What are you willing to give? By the way, let me say this. I want to make sure you understand this. When Jesus died, he did not die a martyr's death. He willingly died a sacrificial death. There is a big, big difference. Even though Jesus was murdered, he did not die a martyr's death. He willingly died a sacrificial death. That's what he gave for us. Paul says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So you're saying, preacher, does that mean that I'm supposed to willingly die for somebody else? Well, not necessarily. You're not the Savior. Whew! However, God may call on you to give something else up, time, money, words of encouragement, building them up, maybe help. They just need help. Maybe you're that person. So when you look at how you see other people and then you have to ask your question, how do I value other people? The most practical way to do that is by saying, what am I willing to give 
to other people. And once you ask that question, then follow it up with this one. And why do I do that? Why do I do any of those things? Why do I want my attitude transformed and renewed? Why is it important? Well, Philippians 2 ends, at least the 11 verses we just read, with the answer to that. We'll start in verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Are you ready? To the glory of God the Father. You do it to the glory of God the Father. You don't allow your attitude to be changed for your glory, though there are a lot of side benefits to having your attitude renewed. You don't even want it to happen for the sake of other people, though they'll appreciate it. You do it for God's sake, for the glory of God the Father. You ask that your attitude be changed. There is a predominant belief today that how I see things and how I view things is how I see things and view things, and therefore it just is. That's who I am, and that's how I deal with life. Well, knock it off. See things the way God sees them. See things the way Jesus sees them. See people the way God sees them. See people the way Jesus sees them. Value other people the way God did. That doesn't mean compromise truth. It just means love your neighbor as yourself. So get busy loving on other people. Let your attitude be changed. It'll even help with conflict from without and from within. Let your attitude be changed. Let it be changed to be like Jesus's. And there's some great stuff in just 11 verses to help us do that. Set up camp in Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Pick it apart. Figure out how to use it because it is practical. It is applicable. It is not just theological theory. It is applicable, and it all boils down to your attitude. Once again, I like the way Winston Churchill summarized that. Here it is. Attitude's a small thing that makes a big difference, even with your walk with God. Let it be transformed. It makes a big, big difference. But it all begins, that transformation does, in a relationship with Him. Let's just take that sickened attitude again. It can only be changed through the spiritual. Counseling can't change it. Therapy doesn't impact it. It is changed through the spiritual. And that means through Jesus. As we read through Scripture, and we already did, looking at all those different passages, it is through Jesus that that transformation happens. So if you don't have a relationship with Him, if the indwelling has not happened for you, then a lot of it will be impossible. So start that today. Get into a relationship with Him today and let the process of renewal and transformation begin. You will be so happy you did and you walk that path all the way to heaven when you stand in His presence. That's the ultimate goal and that's the ultimate joy of knowing who Jesus is. Let's pray together. 
Father in heaven, I'm so thankful that Scripture is practical like this. It's easy for us when we come to passages like Philippians 2 to just skip over it like a rock across the water. But what a mistake that is. So Father, help us not make that mistake. Help us to dig in and to pull out what we so desperately need. Help us to see the depth of teaching in this passage and to grab it and use it, apply it. Father, make us students of the Bible like we have never been before, that we might become children of yours. And then once that's the case, Father, help us live like royalty, like your children, to your glory, so that others will see you. We ask it in Jesus' name and with great faith. Amen.